Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding, and I have another special guest today, Laura from Surefoot. We'll be talking about, well, she'll tell you what we're going to talk about, but conversion optimization, data analysis. We're getting into that Black Friday season. Laura will share some strategies that her and her team are seeing or actively working on, testing, etc. I think Laura and I, at least virtually, we've emailed or known each other back and forth for a few years through mutual connection. Joe from Steo. I don't know if Joe's listening, but hey, Joe, if you are listening. Laura and her team, they work with many brands that you all know, like Brooklyn and uh, Miz and Main, Hydro Flask, Peak Design, et cetera, et cetera. So Laura, just give everyone a quick uh, intro background on you and Surefoot. And then I think we're going to dive into the topic you mentioned we were just talking about before I hit record, which is when you start a CRO program, instead of starting with small tests to build up wins, you try to go the opposite, which is let's take some big swings right away in that first month. So I'm going to tease that. Go ahead and enter uh, yourself and we'll get into that. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, Brad. So my name is Laura Studi. And as Brad mentioned, I am with Surefoot. I'm one of the co-founders. And Surefoot is a boutique user research and CRO agency. Those are the only things that we do. And we offer end-to-end growth programs for our clients, primarily e-com, like Brad mentioned, a few of the logos there. So we have been in existence for six years. I've been in the CRO space for just over 10 years. And Surefoot was created to be thoughtful about our growth and also work with a lot of clients who really align with our values and who take a very user-centric approach to their conversion rate optimization. So we try to root all of our hypotheses in data and user problems. And that's why the user research side of our business exists because it directly supports the CRO side and the tests that we're running. And as a result of that user research piece, we saw an increase really in win rate from 30% to 50% when we incorporated more of the user research into the overall process. So we feel like that is certainly the ticket to successful ROI from your CRO program. Yeah, which you you probably have more experience in this. And sometimes if you hear user research, the immediate reaction might be, oh my gosh, this sounds like it's going to take a long time. But we'll get into that later in the episode. So let's start with that. Yeah, you're flipping maybe that playbook upside down where when you get started, you're going for big swings, trying to hit that home run versus small wins to prove, like get a couple of wins on the board. So break that down for us. So it's really, you know, a lot of folks want to focus on quick wins that they can get out the door quickly once they, especially if they sign up with a testing tool or they're already spending money and investing in their CRO programs. So we really want to focus on quick wins, but also quality wins. There's certainly an importance to that quality aspect. And so we really try to avoid small tests like pop-ups and banner changes and some of the more traditional things you would think of just coming out of the gate because they just don't tend to move the needle in a meaningful way. Even if they're statistically significant, they're just, it might be a 98% statistical winner, but it's a very low lift. It'll be negligible when you're looking at pre-post implementing that change full-time in your actual performance reports. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, if they're super small, they can take a long time to reach significance depending on the client site and how much traffic they have. And, yeah. you know, it just really can put sort of a sour taste in people's mouth starting out if they're not seeing measurable impact or something more meaningful coming out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So no small, like small tests. We're only going. So what are, what are some examples of, go as detailed as you can go without potentially giving away specifics, but some bigger swings, bigger tests, you know, how you hypothesize those, research those, implemented, and, and ultimately what they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So month one in a client's program is typically when we're getting things going with the user research side. And as you mentioned or alluded to earlier, that can take a little bit of time, but we don't just want to let month one go by with no tests going live. So really that's when we're looking at existing data sets. So if the client has any customer service transcripts or screen recordings or things like that, we're taking all of that into consideration and we're trying to run things that are obviously aligned with the organization's KPIs as well. So there's, you know, some art and science to all of this. But a few tests that we've run in month one recently that are a little bit more medium to difficult in size are uh, we personalized a landing experience for logged in visitors in particular and prompted them to repurchase previously bought products or actually even leave reviews in exchange for loyalty points. So that's kind of getting at that loyalty, lifetime value play. Obviously, logged in customers are an important segment for this particular audience. And we were able to see that in the existing data they already had. So that's a more impactful test to start with in month one. What percentage of users were logged in? And was it they're physically logged into their My Account section? Or was it they've logged in or authenticated through an email pop up or they placed an order as a guest? Can you just break that down in terms of percentage of people that would be bucketed into this experiment? Yeah, and that's something certainly worth considering too is, you know, obviously when you're thinking about sample sizes and things like that, you have to consider it. This happens to be a retailer of makeup and beauty products. So they have a disproportionately high number of logged in users, especially those loyalty and loyalists who are coming back to repurchase and reorder. So I would say they actually skew a little bit higher on logged in users than the average e-commerce brand that I've seen just because of that product mix. Yeah. So that was actually, that's why that was so impactful for them and why that ended up being a good sort of month one type experience. How did somebody reach this lander? Would it be a redirect on if they just entered directly in the URL or was it an email campaign? So it'd be an email and it's a direct link in an email or SMS? I think in this particular case, if my memory serves, it was sort of the like welcome page after they log in. So sort of like the my account or basically the summary of all the products and things like that that they had bought in the past. Yeah. And then also that was carried through through the homepage. So like if they returned to the site, they would see on the homepage a module that said, you know, here are your recently ordered products. Nice. Would you like to leave a review? So it kind of carried through throughout the site experience. What were your KPIs? So primary KPIs and secondary KPIs? Yeah, so obviously looking at repurchase rate of the products and overall AOV, also just measuring that, like I mentioned, leaving the reviews for loyalty points. So did we see an increase in reviews during that time period? And this is where it gets a little bit where you hand it over to the client, some and their data team to determine, okay, are we seeing repeat purchases from these people from this you know, segment of customers that we've tagged within our backend CDP and stuff like that? So I think that's a really interesting experiment because... If you think about the digital, so growth marketing, demand generation of acquiring new first-time purchasers, that's a type of data experiment where you get that back in the hands of those growth marketers of, hey, we're seeing these characteristics or whatever data points that you want to extract out of that because that typically is going to be a looking at that LTV or how quickly can we get these users to purchase a second, third time just because all the data we have in terms of if CPAs are up, are two, are up you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%, 
we need to make sure even if that initial first purchase AOV is low or medium, that that second and third repurchase rates happening and ultimately making the initial acquisition whole or profitable. Are those conversations that you or your team are getting into? Are you bringing those insights back to your customer and having them relay that onto the marketing team? Which frankly, I see a lot of bifurcation there where what is being tested on site, those running actual campaigns don't, they don't know. There isn't a whole lot of connection. So if you are listening, your teams are talking, your marketing teams and your e-com strategy and conversion optimization specialists, you're ahead of the curve because typically it's like they're in completely different houses and they're not neighbors that talk. Yes, that's correct. That's something that we see as well and feel like that's really doing brands a disservice. But to your sort of larger question there, uh, yes. So I actually saw a statistic the other day and I, I'm going to botch the exact statistic, but it was basically talking about the importance of instead of focusing on loyalty for third, fourth, fifth time repurchasers to actually really where you need to be focusing is that first time buyer and getting them to a second purchase. So I think that this also reiterates and highlights the importance of account creation because that is data that is actively given to you that obviously you're then able to use in many different ways. But that does help you get to that, these personalized experiences that are allowing you or are one tactic to get from that first to that second purchase. That is the type of data to your point as well, that we do whenever we see things like that or see those trends in the industry, you know, we're not just going to stay in our lane of CRO. We're going to say, hey, here's how this can more broadly apply to your business. And here's how it, of course, impacts what we do on the CRO side. But hey, how do we apply this learning omni-channel or across teams or wherever it needs to go so that we're all working towards the same common goal here uh, and not, you know, actually working against one another, which can also happen if that communication line isn't open. All right, I've got to share some cookie tracking insights here just because my mind immediately went to like, how do I poke holes? As a listener, how do I poke holes in this of that the returning user and not getting caught where cookies are reset? So personalization of how you can recognize a returning user if everything is deleted. I might have taken this blog post down, but Shopify has cookies. So with the Shopify storefront, you can leverage Shopify server set cookies to be that trigger for, if again, just using Google Optimize, which three months from now, Google Optimize will be in the graveyard, but take it for what it's worth. Again, leveraging that trigger of looking at a service set cookie from Shopify that will maintain that one year expiration for now. And that can be the leverage versus relying on a client side cookie that will get reset potentially after 24 hours and make really the experiment. You'll just see this in low numbers. So even though you know you have a high returning user, if there's low numbers that are opted into that experiment or bucketed in, then it might just be a targeting issue. But just wanted to share some feedback. Those that are more technical listening that might want to understand how to do that within their own Google Optimize experiments. Any any other big swings or, or examples of tests that you've implemented in that first month or just maybe it doesn't have to be an experiment, but just improvements that you've recommended and seen really good results from? Yeah. So another one is shipping date assurances by zip code on PDPs. This is something, and I know that we mentioned, Brad, that we would be getting into sort of the trends and Black Friday, Cyber Monday and some of that stuff. So you're going to hear me talk about shipping and shipping thresholds and all of those things a lot, because I think that that is so important. And um, that has certainly been a big one and will continue to be a big one in the months that are ahead. Yeah. Would you recommend everyone that should be a staple for holiday shopping? In terms of the shipping assurances? Yeah, maybe just describe that for those that fully understand what that term means. So yeah, just what does that mean, shipping assurances on a, on a product page? What does it look like? Sure. So basically asking the user, and you can use plugins too, that of course sort of 
guess the location or know the location, but obviously need to also have a manual entry input for entering your zip code and being able to give people an estimate of when their products will arrive. And that is so critical. I mean, Amazon has ruined us all with their two-day shipping and now, of course, their same-day shipping. So it's just an expectation that customers have. Yeah, that seems like a no-brainer during holiday, especially December for people like me who wait till last minute to uh, to purchase. That's exactly right. Yeah, I saw something that talked about, and this is also an LTV play, but there was a 7% higher lifetime value if customers received their item in three days. So sort of three days being the maximum end of that. But this company was talking about how they actually moved warehouses to an entirely different state to be able to accommodate that faster shipping for more people. And they saw that 7% increase in lifetime value just on that alone. I might have some confirmation bias here, but you know who does this really well? Rogue Fitness. They're heavy. So if you're, are you familiar with Rogue Fitness? Sure, yeah. So yeah, they're selling all the, all the weight equipment. So think CrossFit, so the racks and barbells and bikes and ski ergs and real ergs and all that. So very heavy, heavy shipments. I bought a couple things from them over the last year or two, but even most recently bought a couple things, very heavy, singing, okay, these are going to take a while. And they got here in like two days and they don't even tell you. So when you check out, I'm just assuming, okay, this is going to be a long time mm-hmm. because they're heavy. You know, shipping is 80 bucks or whatever it might be. And usually I just think so freight's going to take a long time, but it shows up two days later, which is amazing to me that they're able to turn that around that quickly. So I think that now if I'm thinking about buying something else in the future, if there's more confidence when, okay, I know they're going to get it here quickly. It's not going to have those long, long delays. It sounds like that's what you are playing into of you're just building that confidence of everyone's comparing against Amazon as being that is where every brand wants to be in terms of getting things to your doorstep in minutes. Mm -hmm. That's exactly a play right here, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even the fact that you're talking about it, that word of mouth is invaluable to them. And that's on shipping alone, you know, so that's definitely something they should lean into and be really proud of. I'll have to reach out and see if they want to put a logo on here to sponsor. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Even though I think they just got done with the CrossFit games. So they're probably, uh, they got they got plenty to worry about besides the conversion tracking uh, playbook podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll send you a free barbell or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. I made a mistake once, side topic. So we'll gift, like gift some of our customers. And uh, I had ordered 70 pound kettlebell. It was our previous order on Amazon. And we just have one Amazon account. And I don't only ordered one because A, it was really expensive. B, it was like, ah, we'll see how much you use it. I got it. I wanted to buy the matching one since like, yes, I'm going to use the second one or my wife's going to use it with me. And uh, I noticed I, it didn't show up for a couple of weeks, which was really odd. And I looked and we shipped it to a customer because the last gift we sent to a customer was a default address. Oh, no. <laughs> so they got, yeah, they got a 70 pound kettlebell gift in their doorstep. Anyways, side funny topic there. All right. Where do you want to go next? Do you want to talk about user research? in user testing or UX research, user testing, or your the data analysis process and how, how you go through that? Yeah, let's talk uh, testing and, and research. Okay. All right. So what for those that are listening that may not be experts like you are in, hey, do you do any user testing or, or do you have a UX research process that you go through? Can you just describe that? Just what is the, what's the fifth grader version of, of what are you doing? What tools are you looking at? How long does the analysis take? What's the output of it? Yeah, you bet. So there's a number of different things that go into user research. And I think that the common knock on research, and you alluded to this earlier, Brad, is that it takes a lot of time. And 
It can, for sure. But then again, so can testing. And you can get the same, similar, or even better results sometimes with user research if the project warrants it. I think a common misconception and something that often surprises people when I talk about research in terms of actual one-to-one Zoom user interviews, sort of like you and I are almost having Mm -hmm. right now, is that they have to be with 100 people. Actually, Nielsen Norman Group says that you only need five respondents in order to get sound and valid research. And I actually was always a skeptic of that as a natural skeptic. And then we actually had a client who said, we want to do 10. And sure enough, by number six, we were already hearing the same things. So I can confirm and it has been validated that five is really all you need. And certainly you do want to think about cohorts and segments and things like that. So five on mobile or five new prospects versus customers kind of a thing. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can get really good, clear insights with just those five people. And so as it relates to our process, obviously there's different types of research, like I said, that are more well-suited for certain things. We have a usability scorecard that I can talk a little bit more in depth about, but also there are things like if you're doing navigation testing, I highly recommend card sorting and tree testing. There are tools out there like Optimal Workshop is our favorite that make it so easy and do such in-depth and thorough visualized analysis for you that it really shouldn't be an excuse not to be doing this research. Because frankly, if you just go and redesign your nav and launch it without doing that research, I've seen it go sideways too many times and really hurt the overall user journey and KPIs in the process. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to back us up for a second. So interviewing five people, would that be you doing the interviews? Would that be the brand doing the interviews? Is that somebody external that would conduct the interviews? So we have a user researcher who conducts those interviews, but you know, as a lean team trying to run in-house, yeah. you can definitely run these interviews yourself. My only caveat there is learn how to ask good questions. There's a, a book called The Mom Test. Highly recommend it. It's a thin little short read and it'll teach you all about how to structure your questions so that they aren't leading and getting you the answers that your mom would tell you. <laughs> good. Yeah, the mom test book. We'll have that linked in the show notes. What about uh, jobs to be done? Is that going too far? Is that going too deep into the user research or just questioning, surveying users? So that actually jobs to be done is kind of adjacent to that usability scorecard that I mentioned. So I guess to get into that and to back it up a little bit, I think that usability audits are kind of bullshit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on air. Yeah, yeah, you can curse. That's okay. (laughs) Okay. But if I am looking at your website, and I am a quote expert, I'm just telling you my opinions still. I may or may not be a customer, but I'm still just one person giving you my opinions. And I'm going to have some good ideas, chances are likely, but I'm also going to have some bad ones. And again, I'm just an audience of one. So why not bring that work to your customers? Have them tell you what needs to be improved on your site and what the pain points are. So that's, like I said, why we've developed this usability scorecard in place of usability audits. audits. And that is really a, it's very similar to a jobs to be done framework where our user researcher actually sits down one-on-one with customers or prospects and walks them through these jobs to be done, quote unquote, on a client's site. And then basically they are completing certain actions and scoring how painful or difficult it was to complete those actions. So when we're done, we have basically a heat map of all the key pain points on a client's site. And that's what we're using to identify what hypotheses and tests that we should be running Because if we're solving those problems, we're going to see improvement. And we've seen that in 
the test win rate and also then the end ROI. Because you're translating the responses into either copy on the page, visuals on the page, features or modules on the page. Totally. You know, entire site experiences being redesigned, guided shopping, product recommendation quizzes, those types of things. I mean, anything is really fodder for being improved or optimized. And so it really just depends kind of where where the users guide us and where they tell us those key areas are. So for those that aren't familiar with jobs to be done, I'll try to describe it and then you can clarify or correct me. So let's let's take a look at Elevar. The job that our customers are trying to do is not implement server-side tracking. That's not the job they're trying to do. The job they're trying to do is scale Facebook marketing or understand where to scale channels or whatever it might be. But the job they're trying to do is improve marketing, whether it's scale, whether it's efficiency. It's not to implement server-side tracking. The server-side tracking is a how or a step to get there, but the what they're trying to do, their job they're trying to do is actually just build their business. Retrospect, so bikes, I think that's, I shared this on LinkedIn last week. I was looking at their product page. I know they're very active in user research and testing with their agency, but I think they, they also do a really good job at this of, they have some good, good copy on the page, but there was a visual I shared where it was showing a bike and then there's four different terrains and it was basically city, kind of hilly, mountainous or whatever. And it was just describing visually of if I'm shopping for a bike because I'm living in a city, but I need I don't need a racing bike. I just need a cool casual bike to go through. And it's showing this bike is good for city, for city biking versus hilly biking or mountain biking. I think that is probably along what you're saying of understanding what customers are shopping for, how they're shopping. Yeah, I just needed a bike to I just moved into downtown Austin and needed a, a bike to get me around because I don't want to drive a car or whatever it is. And and that's that was their way of taking that interpretation onto the web. How did I do the jobs to be done or how would you uh, how would you correct that explanation? Yeah, I mean I think that you pretty much hit the nail on the head because you know people buy products and services to get a job done. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a website or a piece of software or anything like that, people are coming because they want to accomplish an end job. And obviously, you can break that down into little pieces and all these little jobs that they need to complete along the way. But yeah, I think that that that's sort of the, you know, very straightforward answer to that. And I think it is about, you know, this one reason that this usability scorecard is nice is because it's not just a, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. It's also about uncovering unmet needs. And so to your point about the bike example, you needed to know about terrain. And instead of just dumping a wall of text on you, it's actually really easy for them to test into something like that visual that you described, which is going to meet the need that you have or help you accomplish the job of buying the bike that you need. Yeah, really, you can do this with any product as well. Uh, did you ever see the deodorant? I think this is one of the most famous copy. I don't know if it was Joanna from Copy Hackers or she has talked about it or I, I don't know where it came from, but someone that was selling deodorant and instead of the homepage hero saying, you know, the best deodorant, blah, 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 blah. It was eliminate the sweaty armpits. And it was a picture like with a wet shirt and sweaty armpits. It was it was targeted towards women, but that's what, instead of leading with, hey, the best deodorant that does blah, 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 it was just eliminate sweaty armpit syndrome. I think that's that's also a job. It's like, I need a better deodorant, so this, this doesn't happen to me. Yeah, and I mean, in that case, leading with the problem that all of us can very much relate to and, it, <laughs> you know, allow us to put ourselves, especially if we're in Austin or Charleston, directly in the shoes of that person, so... Any other good examples uh, where you've you've gone through this research and you've had to 
really make some significant changes either in copy visuals or structure, website structure? What are some examples that, that you've gone through to, uh, to share? We have them all the time. And I think we see a lot, like I mentioned, with navigation, um, just navigation hierarchy, also nomenclature. Like this is one of my bigger pet peeves, but the words that brands use to describe or group their products so often do not align with the mental models that users and customers have for how they would describe and search for those products. And so anytime that there's like a trademark symbol behind something or it's a non-standard word that's used to describe something, customers don't know what that is. And I know that the brand teams say that it's the differentiator and it's the thing that makes us stand out. But if if you can't find it, it's not going to make you stand out. And so oftentimes that's what's leading us to do more of these other user research activities like card sorting and tree testing that are really going to help prove out and have customers, again, tell us, okay, what are you looking for when you come to this site? And I would say the other one is product detail pages. Also, we see a lot, this is kind of interesting, around product recommendations and people's expectation for those. Mm -hmm. It turns out that more people than I would actually have hypothesized are interested in seeing relevant products or similar products, things that go with the hero product they're buying. And so many brands struggle to show them relevant products and to really think about what should be shown. And I think that there's a lot that goes into the AI and the algorithms and all of that around the personalization and recommendation engines. We have done a number of tests where we've actually just looked at sales data and hard-coded the recommendations versus testing the robots, as I like to say. And more often than not, the hard-coded wins. Interesting. So. Those are some of the more surprising ones, but ones I like because I'm a curmudgeon in tech. So Yeah, and I bet that in Black Friday, I bet that even you could see that persist even more because curating gifts or buying gifts for families, things of that nature, that might make more sense in a seasonality period versus just looking at, okay, the last year of data, what was most commonly purchased together. Shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about trends in CRO that you are seeing, and then we'll we'll get into looking at the... Black Friday, Cyber Monday, which I'm not ready for. I want to. I want to enjoy the rest of my summer. Yeah, likewise. All right, trends in CRO. What? Uh, you're in here all day, every day. So, what do you? What are you seeing that others should be aware or cognizant of besides Google Optimize sunset date of September 30th? Yes, that in the GA4, the great GA4 migration, which I know you're very familiar with. So, I think that to our discussion we just had, product recommendation carousels and tools. I mean, those are things that I hear about. All the time people are focused on, especially during or as we're heading into the holidays, but really optimizing the experiences around those, not only in terms of their placement and where they are in the customer buying journey, but also the segmentation of them. And that's a piece where I feel like there's more work to be done is really around how can you better understand your segments and who's coming to your site, obviously. Like you mentioned earlier, there's some implications with third-party cookies and things like that. But how can you create more personalized experiences within those carousels for certain segments of your audience? So that's certainly one, certainly an increased urgency to increase AOV. I think that's something that's on everyone's minds lately in particular. But, you know, what are the types of upsells that we can test or that we can try to use to move the needle on AOV? Um, Something that we've done a fair bit of testing around is 
upselling and where to insert that into the customer journey. One thing I'll say about that is, especially if you have higher ticket items, it's really important to have upsells that are like, we call it like the Toblerone at the world market checkout. You know, something that someone's just going to walk by and say, ah, it's only $3. I'll throw it in my cart. You know, 20 bucks and under is usually kind of the threshold that we've seen for that real uptake to be meaningful and to, you know, obviously it's not going to skyrocket your AOV, but it is going to be something and is also a way to increase sell through sometimes on those products that just aren't moving or uh, that are sitting in the warehouse. So I bought this... This is a standing desk I got from one of our customers, Branch. Just went through like normal, just as a consumer, because I was actually, the desk I had was like six or seven years old. I don't know, it was like seven, six or seven hundred bucks. I can't remember exactly how much, but I think at the time of purchasing, probably didn't know exactly, or I didn't know like what the desk was going to look like, how it was going to come together. When something is, it's a larger item, like you said, it could be a, a car accessory, whatever it might be, but where the standard post-purchase upsell where I place an order, then I get the pop-up like, hey, would you like to add this to your order? And my mind says like, I have no idea. I don't even know what this thing looks like or what it comes with, what it doesn't come with because I'm not reading all the specs. I'm reading just enough to make that purchase. What tips do you have in that flow or that, I guess that experience where it is a higher ticketed item initially? Is it curating the post-purchase SMS? Is it sending me something X number of days after the shipment? What tips or, or suggestions do you have in that scenario where we're not at the grocery aisle checkout? Like uh, the great example we used with, uh, was it Trader Joe's? No, World Market. World Market, yeah. Trader Joe's also applicable though. So that's a great question. And I would say that that's where you also want to lean more heavily than usual into the nurturing. And so it is the experience and the post-purchase experience, the post-purchase emails, SMS, like you said. And this is the other thing where shipping and your email need to be very closely tied to one another because nothing is worse than getting a, an email like, here's how you use it and you haven't even gotten the product yet. <laughs> so yeah, I would say that that's really the key opportunity. And obviously you can include product recommendations and upsells and emails, but you can really work that into your flows in terms of, you know, obviously looking at sort of the life cycle of when people buy, but say it's three weeks after Now you've had a chance to really use the desk. You're starting to realize like, oh man, I wish I had a power outlet that was on the desk. Like this is the time now to hit you with that. Hey, have you thought about adding this? Kind of a little reminder or nudge. And um, I think that that's the kind of stuff that, you know, even I know Chewy does a great job of this, the pet company, like following up with you after a certain period of time to ask if you need to reorder your dog food. And then also saying, also, here's some other things your furry friend might like, you know, included in the same box kind of a thing. So I think with those higher priced items in particular, you sort of are expected, frankly, to go a little bit above and beyond on your customer service and check-ins. Two thoughts. I think those are great suggestions, great tips. One, what about an upsell on the instruction manual? It has a 100% open rate. Everyone has to read it. They have to after they get frustrated that they can't figure it out themselves anyway. That's how I operate. I'm like... Yeah, if everyone's like me, yeah, you're reading the instruction manual a hundred times because I can hardly hang a picture on the wall. But like, I wonder, this is going way off in left field potentially, but yeah, I wonder how many people get to the end of putting it together and are like, ah, okay, what about like for this desk specifically, you haven't bought it, like something that hangs on the back of the desk to hold all of the wires. Because right now all the wires and everything are just hanging down to the floor. That's like a super simple accessory of like, hey, here's some other things that you might, you just put it together, everything works. 
here are other things that we see customers will also buy at some point in the next 30 days. It's going to be a basket for your wires. It's going to be whatever. I don't know, something to hold your pens. So that was thought number one that was going through my head as a, a unique place. Thought number two, I think I already lost it. Yeah, I forgot it. <laughs> I forgot what the second one was. You could also do, because like a lot of companies put QR codes on stuff if you want a video yeah, overview yeah, yeah. and you could drop it in like your YouTube comments or, you know, have links to accessories within the videos that could be kind of interesting. But I also, because you mentioned the instruction manuals, a lot of the time they send warranty cards. I wonder if it would be also interesting if you could offer people like a free accessory if they fill out the warranty card and give you some additional information about themselves just as a way to get that zero-party data even offline. You triggered it. Zero-party data. That's what it was. That was the second one. All right. My uh, wife and I were talking, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, we were at a restaurant and there's something that we were just talking about reviews and feedback. I said, something that restaurants never do when you're leaving. So they'll ask for a review. But what they don't ask is, hey, is there anything that you, you were hoping that we would have, whether it's I don't know, an appetizer, a beer, a wine, like whatever it is. Is there anything that you were hoping that we would have, but we didn't have? I never get asked that. Maybe they do in Austin where the restaurants are better. But I was thinking the same thing with you're going through, just talking about that post-purchase flow of with zero-party data of, of asking, hey, is there anything that you're hoping to get from this purchase that we didn't get? I don't know. I'm going way off on tangents here, trying to solve my own problem. But anyways, yeah, maybe maybe another flow that can be added to that post-purchase of uh, just extracting out like that, those upsells of, is there anything else that you wish came with this order that wasn't or any upsells that you would suggest and then add that into your, your manually created upsell strategy, whether it's in the cart, in the checkout, and that post-purchase email flow? Yeah, I think that brands are definitely going to have to get more creative in the future with how they are collecting that zero-party data. And some of that is going to have to move back to the offline methods. So it's certainly going to be fun times. Yeah. All right. Black Friday, Cyber Monday. What do you got? What do you got for us? So I was reading some interesting stuff just yesterday, actually, that was talking about Shopify data in particular from last year. And it was saying that the average order values during last year's Black Friday, Cyber Monday were $105 globally and $120 for US sales during those time periods in particular. So offering some sort of a bundle or gift with purchase type deal that can compete in that sort of $99 to $120 sweet spot range would probably be worthwhile. And then, of course, there's a little bit of an AOV play there. But something in addition to that that I had seen was that there was an experiment that revealed that offering a free gift instead of a bundle actually reduced returns. So in that particular case, the control was to buy a sweater for $49 and you get a free scarf. And the variation was you buy both for $49. And those in the variation were actually 14% more likely to return the sweater. Interesting. So yeah, the psychology kind of behind that is that when we buy a quote unquote gift promotion, we feel we got more value out of it and therefore we're less likely to return it so that we would lose that value. So that's why I say sort of instead of a bundle, actually maybe test against a free gift and see how it impacts your transactions, your AOV, so forth. The free gift performed better than the bundle together? So the buy both for $49 was the variation. So those in the variation were 14% more likely to return the sweater. So the buy a sweater for 49 and get a free scarf perform better. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What else? That's a really good one, especially with the Shopify's new bundle feature that they released. That's right. Yeah. This is a pretty 
obvious one probably, but be extra focused on optimizing your mobile experiences. Like do that now if you haven't started. Check everything, QA across all browsers, that kind of stuff. Um, because I think 48% of e-commerce sales on Black Friday were made on phones last year. And it kind of makes sense because especially on Thanksgiving, no one's at their desk. They're all on their phone, right? So yeah, that even seems low. Yeah, I know. But my guess is, you know, it'll continue to rise year after year. (laughs) But I think the other thing is coming back to the free shipping thresholds. So the thresholds themselves, the messaging around them, you know, you can offer or test whether offering free shipping above, you know, a certain amount, of course, it increases that AOV and helps also cut down on shipping costs. Will you be testing during Q4? Actively testing? Yes. So, I mean, it obviously comes with the territory, but I always recommend testing. I think it's actually one of the best times, if not the best time to test, because I know a lot of people are worried about it and there's code freezes and all of these things. But with testing, you have the ability to very quickly make decisions on things. And if they're not working, you can shut them off. You don't have to call up your dev team and get it in a sprint and all that other shit. Like you just turn the test off. And so it enables brands, especially during times like now when things are just weird and, you know, we need to eke out all the small wins we can. Let's run some tests, see what happens. And if it's not looking good, obviously you can make calls on the fly. I do have an asterisk there. My data analyst would kill me if she heard this and I didn't say it. Obviously, you're not going to be able to rely on your usual sort of statistical significance calculations for that. So there's going to be some more advanced analysis that has to happen there, but it is possible. Yeah. Run it. I've been saying the same thing for years. Yeah. Test. That's the best time to be testing. Yeah. Because you're going into holiday. There's so many ideas like, oh, we should do, I don't know, a quiz, a spin, spin to win thing or whatever it might be. It's testing into knowing that those are going to work because what you don't want to do and find out after the fact is a bunch of new features were released or new copy or pictures or whatever it might be. And then it actually hurt your normal conversion rate from even just your base, like your standard site. Yeah. And one thing I will say, and maybe the sort of caveat to the free shipping is that oftentimes that is best done as a pre-post test. So a period before you make the change and after. And during those two periods, you need real homeostasis. So like no major promotions or email sends or anything like that. So holiday isn't really always the best time to send that just because consumer behavior obviously is, you know, so different. But you still have some time leading up to Black Friday to to get that out the door. And that's something that we actually did for a mutual client, Peak Design. And they saw 17% AOV increase, 16% transaction increase in orders above the threshold. Nice. And I think they saved a 21% decrease in shipping costs. So, I mean, there's huge implications around that. That's massive. Congrats on that win. Yeah, that was a, a big one for all of us. Yeah. All right. A good win to end on. Laura, where can folks get in touch with you? Uh, you can email me at laura at surefoot.me or visit us at surefoot.me on the interwebs and uh, also on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm just STL Studi on Twitter, originally from St. Louis. So, Are you a Twitter or LinkedIn? What's your go-to? You know, I'm both. I'm trying to get more into both of them. You know, they, they have their downsides on both counts, but I'm active on both. It's called X. X or LinkedIn. Yes, I apologize. I can't get on board with that new language yet. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Laura, thanks for joining. Reach out to Laura if you are in need of any CRO, UX research, anything we talked about today. Laura and their team do amazing work. Like she said, we have many mutual customers, so we get to see firsthand a lot of the quality work that you're putting out. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. 
in order to help spread the word and just support the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn, send it to colleagues, or just send me feedback. I love reading feedback. I appreciate it. Many of the guests that have been on here, they've just emailed saying, hey, I'd love to join. Here's some topics. That could be you. Just shoot me an email or hit me up on LinkedIn. My email is brad at getelevar.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and you want to give us a rating, I would appreciate that as well. You can rate us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you are listening to this. But at the end of the day, if you could just share this and let others learn more about the world that you live in, the world that I live in with e-commerce and conversion tracking, I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.